If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We will soon be reading beginning in verse 6. If you want to borrow a Bible from the pocket of the pew in front of you, you may do that. And you can find 1 Corinthians 2, the very beginning of the passage that we're going to be reading on page 895. What is the cross of Christ good for? What is it good for? If we were to ask that for the people who have been gathered here this morning, it is likely that we might get variations, but kind of on the same and similar theme. It is, it is good for salvation, meaning that it's good for, some people would say, forgiveness, right? By the cross, Jesus is opening up for us a way for the, the Lord to forgive our sins. It is a place of sacrifice. It is a demonstration of love. Some who are gunning for gold medals might, might use stronger words. They might use the words atonement or expiation, or those who want platinum coins might even go for propitiation, and you would all be correct. This is neatly summarized in simply saying that the cross of Christ is there for our salvation. It is by the cross that we are saved. The cross is where God and Jesus purchased for us forgiveness for our sins, as Jesus died for our sins on our behalf. These are by far the most basic and fundamental truths that Christianity affords to anyone. And in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul was reminding the Corinthians of these sort of very fundamental truths. They were pushing for factions and divisions to show who was better or who was smarter or who was more spiritual or who might be more advanced or further along in the faith. And they did this, Paul assumed, they must be pursuing some sort of wisdom in the world because if you truly understand what the cross of Christ was there for, these factions, these divisions couldn't possibly arise in you. And so Paul seems to be reminding them the salvation cannot come by that wisdom that you're applying. You're applying the wisdom of the world in your midst. And that wisdom was not what saved you. Of all things, in the first chapter, verse 21 is most clear about this. There Paul writes that, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The wisdom of the world, because we are haunted by sin, we are tainted by sin, can never pull people closer to God, but can only push people away. Our decisions, our wisdom, all of it is flawed. God could not, therefore, use our wisdom to draw us to himself. Those, those roads diverge and they never come back together. He cannot use something that pulls us away to pull us near. So God, in his wisdom, decided to save us and to call us through the folly of preaching something that is folly to us. And Paul reminds us that the message should have been pure stupidity and folly to you. The ones who received it were of no value in the world, and even the one who preached it didn't preach it like one who, who you would expect people to be charged to follow. All of it was a demonstration that God saves by the power of the cross through the working of the Spirit. Yet yeah, when you read through 1 Corinthians 1, you get the sense that everyone kind of got that. 
The Corinthians seem to know this. They, they seem to be reminded by Paul of these truths rather than him telling them anew for the first time. He's asking them to remember what he preached. He's, he's telling them to remember who they were and to remember how he was. It was what he deemed fundamental. And yet, this is where the sort of discontinuity with the Corinthians begins. Their problems weren't really under salvation. Their problems weren't really understanding that Jesus died for them. Their problem was in every other facet of life. What are they supposed to do with the rest of their lives? How are they supposed to lead their lives? How are they supposed to deal with factions and divisions? How are they supposed to deal with issues of sex and property and uh, the Lord's Supper and when they don't agree with one another and gifts and worship and all these issues? How are they supposed to deal with this? On salvation, they might say, we're all agreed. But the rest of life, how are we supposed to walk? Wisdom is obviously the solution to these things. And each and every one of us applies wisdom to how we live our lives. Wisdom, although you can define it in probably hundreds of different ways, is just asking the question of what is the best way to live now as well as one that provides for the best life in the future? How can you live your, the best way now to secure the best life that you can have in the future? And the question then for them and before Paul is a simple one. How are we to find such wisdom? How do we get it? The cross has saved us, we agree. But how are we supposed to walk forward now? Where do we find that treasure trove of wisdom? Chapter turn, chapter 1 kind of refined our thinking on wisdom and salvation, but chapter 2 seems to turn on a slightly different question. How do we walk forward then? I hope to show that Paul's answer lies here. The same wisdom that saves you also provides you with the wisdom for the rest of your life. True wisdom is found in truly understanding the cross of Christ. If you would read with me from verse 6 in chapter 2. Here, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Yet, among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? This is the word of our God. As we consider this word this morning, the question before us is, where can we find God's wisdom? And the first place we find God's wisdom is hidden for the cross. God's wisdom is hidden for the cross. The first line of our text indicates that Paul is trying to address this problem. What wisdom should we have in our lives? You, you seem to be saying that you're not giving us wisdom. You, you refuse to give us and speak to us through worldly wisdom, although there is this wisdom of God as in foolishness, and, and there's still this question of where can we find wisdom? I think Paul is being very clear. Don't think that I spent 18 months with you and left you without the way in which you ought to handle yourself. He says, we imparted this wisdom. To the mature, it was there. When you hear Paul say, to the mature, we impart wisdom, you should be careful to hear what he is saying well. Paul's not saying that when you reach a certain level of Christian maturity, then you can get into some better classes. Once you pass Christianity 101 and 201, then in 301, we start to give you some Christian maturity. Or once you get to the back of the Bible, that's where you really find the good stuff. He's not saying that at all. What he's rather saying is, if you were listening to us well, if you were mature, you would hear in the preaching of the cross what you needed for wisdom. When he says, we do impart wisdom. That makes it sound like it's separate from what he's been doing, but it really doesn't mean that. The word here is probably better translated as we are speaking wisdom. Amongst the mature, we are speaking wisdom. The very thing that we've been speaking, when I said, hey, I, I decided that I wasn't going to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, you might think, well, that was just for salvation. And Paul's saying, no, to those who are mature, who can hear it, we're speaking wisdom. This is what you need to know for how you handle the rest of your life. This is how you walk forward. And yet at the same time, Paul says, that which we speak in verse 7 is a secret wisdom. It is a hidden wisdom in a mystery. It seems as though if, if people were meant to be wise and meant to walk wisely through the world, we have to question why it is that God would deem it right to hide that wisdom from people. Why would God, of all the creatures who, who seems to love people, to desire what is best for them, who wants them to walk innocently through the world, who wants them to do what is right, who gives his law so that people might do that. Why would he then keep this wisdom hidden from them? I believe that what Paul is going to talk about is that this hiddenness was necessary. And indeed, although it doesn't sound like it, it is incredibly gracious. That this is a mystery implies that if you were to go back in the Old Testament and look for what Paul is talking about, and saying that it's true, you would, you would find it there. But you would only find it there because you know how it ends. 
If you've ever read mystery novels, you've ever read Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes or anything like that, you, you know that they're giving you details through the book. And once you've read enough of these, you realize, hey, that seems like an innocuous detail, but for some reason that's an important detail. And you don't have the faintest clue why the author tells you that. And then when it comes to the end of the book, you know you're supposed to be able, they've given you everything that you might need to be able to put it together, and you're just waiting for them to tell you. And then when they tell you, all the details start to fall into place. And when you know what Jesus has done and you know what he has gone through and you know what he gives to you, going back then through the Old Testament is like that. It's, it's a mystery that has all of the pieces falling into place. So for, for new Christians, there's this beautiful moment when you discover Isaiah 52 and 53, especially if you weren't raised in the church, when you come to know the Lord, when you hear Isaiah 52 and 53 for the first time, you say, this was written 700 years before Jesus went to the cross. And on top of that, before crucifixion was even a thing, and you read it and you say, that sounds so much like a crucifixion. It's almost a picture-perfect description of what crucifixion is like. And yet, if you take that passage and you remove from it any knowledge that you have of crucifixion or especially of the crucifixion of Jesus, well, it reads much differently. I doubt that if you didn't know of those things, that you would understand. And even if you knew of crucifixion, that you would see it necessarily there. Remember, Jesus three times on the road to Jerusalem said, hey, by the way, I'm going to be crucified. And none of the disciples said, oh yeah, like Isaiah 53. They didn't do that because it's opaque to them. They didn't get it. They didn't see it. Even though now it's perfectly clear. It's almost impossible for any of us who know of the cross of Jesus Christ to go back and read that passage and think, this isn't talking about the crucifixion. Paul then tells us why it was hidden. He says, they didn't know. God hid it from them. None of the rulers of the age understood this because God hid it from them. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they, if they had truly understood who that suffering servant in Isaiah was, if they truly had it placed before them all of the intricacies of the incarnation and of the salvation that would be wrought, of their own sinfulness in doing it, there's no way they would have touched him with a 10-foot pole. If they knew that what they were doing was crucifying the Lord of glory, crucifying the incarnate God of the Old Testament, tearing down the very temple that they sought to be saved by, Paul says, it never would have happened. They never would have done it. He goes on to say, But nevertheless, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. You, you don't know it. You didn't see it. You didn't hear it. You, you couldn't make this up if you wanted to. And God kept it that way. He could have very easily laid out for us all of the details of everything that was going to happen to Jesus. He could have very easily done that. And Paul's argument is, had he done that, there would have been no salvation for anyone. Because even though they were sinful, they wouldn't have gone that far. God purposely held back that knowledge. Knowledge that would have stopped the evil that was done to Jesus. It seems very punitive, not so much to Jesus, but to the people who undergo that penalty. It seems 
punitive that he, he could have released this information to Judas, but he doesn't. Judas goes forward with his plan. Why does God do this? Isaiah 6, Isaiah almost sets all of this in motion. Famous passage where he sees the glory of the Lord filling the temple, right? And, and he sees the thrice holy God and he hears the angels and God calls out and says to him, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I, Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, you are to make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Your ministry is one of deafening and blinding. It is the opposite of what Jesus has come to do. You were to make it so that they cannot turn around and be healed. That's harsh. This comes up in John. This very passage comes up in John explaining the end of the ministry of Jesus and why it is that so many Jews have turned away from him. John 12 says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. The whole point of that is if they turned, if they knew, if they repented, there would be no salvation for anyone. It is a harsh word. It is a word of judgment, but it is a word of graciousness to you and I. Had they not been blind, had they not been deaf, had they turned and believed, there would be no salvation for any of us. God has regarded this so important that it's not just that the, the cross is folly, but he had to set it up so that no one would know it. He had to hide it so that salvation might be achieved. So in the cross of Christ, we see this sort of hidden wisdom of God, but we also find God's wisdom revealed in the cross. It is also revealed in the cross. As we talked about even this morning, when the, the glory of the Lord comes upon Solomon's temple, the cloud that comes in there both hides the glory of God, it hides the fullness of God, but also reveals that he is there and present. And so the cross not only hides this wisdom of God, but it also somehow reveals it. It is ironic that the cross does both of these things. God indeed does grant us eyes to see and ears to hear by the work of the Spirit. And Paul makes an interesting comparison. He says, it's just like you. You have a spirit, and your spirit is the only one that knows everything that's going on with you. Your spirit's the only one that knows every thought and every feeling and every emotion that goes through you. My wife knows me pretty well. I know her pretty well. If, if you were to bring me up something and say, hey, would Brie like this? Food, clothing. 85% chance I'm getting that right. I know her pretty well. Maybe that's a bit high. I might, I might lie a little bit if it's not something I want, but whatever, you know. Like, here's a, would Brie like a new set of golf clubs? Yes, she absolutely would. She, she takes men's, by the way. I don't know what the deal is with that, but 
So, even though I know that, I don't know all of her thoughts. And I'm not even talking like I do sometimes about the evil and wicked thoughts that flirt through our heads every once in a while. Not even talking about those. Just the everyday sort of thoughts. She doesn't know all my thoughts. She doesn't have access to all those. She's the person who knows me best in the world. She doesn't know half of the things that go through my head, which is good. I've got a little brain. It's probably just bubblegum commercials from the 90s, but she doesn't need that kind of heat on her life. She's got enough going on. She doesn't need jingles in her head, but she doesn't know it. But my spirit knows. I know what's going on. And it says, just like that, the Spirit of God knows the fullness of the depth of God because it's his spirit. And that is the very spirit that has been given to us. These are who are spiritual. They're not a separate class of Christians. They're just Christians. Christians have been given the Spirit. Christians are the ones who are spiritual people. The whole point of setting up the idea that salvation is only by the Spirit means that if you speak that the Lord Jesus has come and died and risen again, that means, as John would say later, no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So if you are capable of doing that, if you are saved, then you are a spiritual person. This is precisely what Paul is getting at here. So, the Spirit of God knows all of the deep things of God, and he reveals it to us. All of God's thoughts and desires and plans and perfections. This doesn't mean that the Spirit is there to do our will. The Spirit is not to be confused with Siri, right? That we can just ask a question of and, and he'll spit us out the answer, no matter how right or wrong that might be. We do not have the spirit of the world given to us by God, but the very spirit who comes from God. And he divulges these things so that we might understand the things freely given to us. We might want to read that as the things that are graciously given to us. The cross is not just a solitary gift that we get so that we might pass judgment at the end of day, but it is manifold with many gifts to help us navigate the entirety of our lives. And Paul reiterates his position back to them. I have not kept this from you. I've not kept wisdom from you. I'm not hiding it anymore. I'm plainly divulging it to the mature. We impart this wisdom. We are speaking of wisdom. We interpret spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, he says. Now, I remember when I was younger, I used to always read that like mystically, that, that there were spiritual truths in here. That, that you just won't understand until you get like deeper in the spirit and then the spirit will reveal these things to you like magically, like when you put on those decoder glasses when you're a kid and the red things, then all of a sudden the sentence pops out and the spirit just does this for us. But I don't think that the, Paul means that at all. I think Paul means rather naturally that the spirit shows you what it is that the Spirit means to tell you in his word and that you accept it, you believe it, you trust it, you, you read it and you say, this has been divulged to me and I will follow it. These are spiritual truths and they are revealed to people of the Spirit, spiritual people. Those who are natural or of the flesh, he says, reject this kind of stuff. Verse 15 can also be misunderstood, Right? I don't need anyone to judge me, Paul says. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. Those who believe that they can exist far and away, separate from all other Christians, can come to the truth and can, can work on the truth of their own. He is, 
He's basically telling them here, you don't need anybody else. If you got the Spirit of God, what else do you need? But the question is, who is the spiritual person here? A spiritual person is not someone who is really in touch with the spiritual side of things, who listens to Yanni on the beach with some incense and hums to themselves. They might be spiritual. There's nothing wrong with Yanni. I don't have a problem with him. But that's not making you spiritual. Just because you, you are thinking that you're connected somehow to something that is not material doesn't make you spiritual in Paul's world because everybody is spiritual that way in Paul's world. Spiritual means somebody who has the Spirit. And that implies a very distinct set of beliefs, which Paul has already made clear. The spiritual person believes in the nature of God, the right nature of God. The spiritual person must believe in the incarnation. The spiritual person must believe in the gift of salvation wrought by the cross and the resurrection. He must believe in the revelation of Scripture as the Spirit brings to him the very words of God. He must believe in the centrality of love given by the cross. If someone were to come up to Paul and say, I'm spiritual, you can't judge me based upon your own word, Paul would say, okay, in certain things, sure. If they were to come up and say, I want to eat meat, Paul's going to say, that's fine, you can eat meat. If they want to come up to Paul and say, I want to speak and pray in tongues, Paul's going to say, hey, you pray in tongues. They come up to Paul and they say, I want to deny the resurrection. Paul's going to say, you better hold up because that's not a spiritual person. You don't get to believe anything you want to. That's not what it means. It means on the, the other things that don't include these central facets of Christianity. You don't need to be judged. If you want to eat meat, you don't want to eat meat, you're judged by no one. The only thing that matters is your conscience before God. But on these central tenets of the faith, the very center of what the cross implies, those things, those are what make you a spiritual person. Affirming that Jesus is Lord is not an external thing that doesn't matter. It is central to being a spiritual person in the first place. The cross is not simply there for your end-time salvation. Listen, we continually press this idea, but it's, it's so much the center of of evangelical preaching today. That we, we need to present the cross of Jesus Christ so that people can be saved. That Jesus saves you by the cross. And that's almost the fullness of what we talk about the cross for. You come to Jesus and you get saved. Come to Jesus so that you can be forgiven. Come to the cross for that. And so that, that cross basically ends up meaning nothing else. And listen, I, I have a lot of reasons to believe that the Corinthians would have recited that precisely. They knew that. But Paul is trying to push them further. Our minds have not yet grasped the immensity of the cross for our lives. It isn't just there to purchase salvation and forgiveness for them, atonement, propitiation. It's, it is foundational for the way in which you live your life, for all of your life. It is where the wisdom of God is most clearly and truly revealed. It is the thing that the Spirit is revealing to you, both to get you saved and then further on in wisdom. And Paul's saying, when we give to you these spiritual truths, when I showed up and I said, nothing will I know before you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, don't think that I'm not giving you wisdom. I'm giving you everything. There is nothing else that you need. 
I'm revealing to you the full counsel of God, summarized, condensed, boiled down into one event in history. Jesus Christ has died for you. There is wisdom revealed at the cross. Lastly, though, we also see that God's wisdom is applied through the cross. It is applied through the cross. Here at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul says, listen, I... I could not address you as spiritual people. By that, he clearly is, is kind of provoking them. He doesn't mean that they don't have the cross of Christ. He does call them infants in Christ. But he's saying, you are too still wrapped up in your flesh. He says, I, I look around and I know that you're wrapped up in your flesh because this is why you've got factions and divisions among you. If you, if you didn't have, if you got those things, it shows that you haven't matured far enough yet. If you can't get the foundational things correct, how are you ever going to see in Christ something more than just salvation? If you don't know that, that the work of Christ on the cross implies that you have earned nothing, it is purely a gift, and therefore no one of you is better than anyone else. If you don't have that down, how are you ever going to see in the cross of Christ something different? It says, I had to feed you with milk, not, not wisdom, not mature, solid food. There's a reason why we give babies milk. It's because their bodies literally cannot handle more than that. They reject it, sometimes very forcefully. And so because they reject it, Paul's like, this is exactly what would have happened with you. You would reject any sort of wisdom that I was going to give to you because you clearly were not ready for it. But even now, he says, this information is a little short of you, but Paul's going to reveal it continuously throughout this letter. Paul's going to come back to this. He's going to reveal it to them. He's assuming that they will get the basics down, and he's assuming that in the cross of Christ they will see the unfolding wisdom of God. These principles, this wisdom, is applied through the cross, and Paul is setting up the precedent that we need to carry on with. What is most important is clearly given by the Spirit. All else can be between you and God. But above all of this, the wisdom that you need in life is summarized, it's condensed, and ultimately revealed at the cross. And let's be clear, it's not that the Bible doesn't have other sources of wisdom, okay? For the Corinthians, the Bible was the Old Testament. And man, the book of Proverbs is literally a book of wisdom from front to back. We're not saying that there was no wisdom there. We're not saying that Deuteronomy has nothing to teach you. We're not saying that the Old Testament is a worthless pile until you get a worthless pile of trash until you get to the cross. That's not what we're saying. But we are saying that outside of the cross, none of that's actually going to mean anything. The cross is what makes it make sense. The cross is the distillation of what that is getting at. And the cross is useful for all of life. To give you an example from this book, although we're going to get there in a couple of weeks, I just, it is one of the the strangest little bits of advice that Paul gives to anybody in the letter. In chapter 6, there are these divisions and factions, and it's not just divisions and factions within the church about who is better or who is worse. There are lawsuits going on between the church members. They've got probably business deals that have gone wrong, something else, somebody loaned money and somebody hasn't paid them back and, and they're not able to settle this themselves and Paul is really upset. He, he's, can't you find anyone 
in the entire congregation that can handle these things. But instead of going before people of the church who have the Spirit, you decided to take this as a lawsuit before unbelieving people. He says, strangely enough, you shouldn't take this sort of legal dispute outside the walls of the church. It's an amazing statement in and of itself. If you have a business problem with somebody in the church, he says you ought to find somebody in the church who can handle it because they have spiritual wisdom. They've got a wisdom that's distinct from the wisdom of the world to be applied into situations like that. And he says the fact that you have no one here who knows how to handle this, that's already a loss for you, which is an amazing statement, but not nearly as amazing as what he's going to say. He says this in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Not only will the people of God, unified to Christ, rule and judge the world, but Paul says very clearly, listen, some of you are being cheated. There is injustice going on in your midst. And you know what you ought to do? You ought to let it go. Isn't it better to be defrauded than to go out in the world and have unbelievers judge people of the church? Isn't it better to be cheated? This is honestly one of the most incredulous things that Paul says in the entirety of the letter. Can you imagine a pastor saying this to two business people in his congregation today. Somebody owes thousands of dollars to another. And they say, hey, I'm going to take Frank to court. My family can't handle this. And a pastor will look at him and say, you know, we should have been able to handle this, but isn't it better to just be defrauded than to do that? They'd say he didn't care about justice, he might say he didn't care about them. He might say he doesn't care about doing what is right. Yet listen to Paul's reasoning behind this. Why not rather suffer wrong? Now, where on earth do you think that Paul got that idea? Where, where would someone come up with the idea that it's better to suffer wrong? That sounds a lot like, I don't know, that Paul is thinking that someone suffering wrong for the sins of others ought to be common sense among the people of God. And again, that is just the right application of the cross to something like finances and lawsuits. It is better to suffer wrong as Jesus suffered wrong for us. Do you not think that God is going to make it right? Do you not think that entrusting yourself, as Peter would say, to the one who judges justly is a better idea than taking a brother or a sister to court? It is radical, and it is a harsh decision against the flesh, but it is the wisdom of God, and it is a cross-like way to think through some issue. It's the same way that we do it with almost every issue that hits us. There isn't a mass wisdom that you will get from the world. There's a, a way of walking through life, a way of doing things, a way of speaking, a way of eating, a way of handling difficulties as they come to you. Some of this is passed down from your parents. Some of it is, is modeled by the people of the world. It's given to you by what we might call common sense now. 
This is the common sense thing to do. This is the way we, we ought to handle this. Let's be clear, not all of these are bad or wrong. Some of them are right, but every single one needs to be filtered and applied through the cross. They must be tested by the love, the passion, the death, and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The cross is not just how you pursue salvation, friends. It is not just there so that Jesus might be glorified. Both of those things are absolutely and foundationally true. And if that's why you pursue the cross, amen, hallelujah, because getting the first things first is most important. But it is also there for your good. It's there to help you wisely navigate the troubles of the world. It's there to be a balm when the world burns you. It's cool water in the heat, as logic and reason in the fog of this world, to be compassion for you in your sadness and light in the darkness. The cross is there for all of the ills that the world can throw upon you. It is a powerful weapon against the flesh, and it is a grand help against the enemies that we have. So know that your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, has not only saved you by the cross, not only does he lead you in triumphal procession before the powers of this world, not only does he lead you through those things, but also he takes you through good paths in the wilderness of this world, just as God knew the path to take his people through in the wilderness. So Jesus now, by the work of his cross and the giving of the Spirit to you, can lead you in good paths through this world. There is a Redeemer, and not just for your soul, but for the entirety of your life. Where do we find wisdom? We find it at the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord, how kind. How kind you are to us. How full of wisdom and power your spirit is. We are naturally only filled with foolishness. Our thoughts and actions lead us continually again and again to misery and sin. Yet in your kindness, you not only have forgiven those sins, but you have given us right paths to walk and clear sight to navigate by. Praise be to the Father for his love, to the Son for his sacrifice, and to the Spirit for his work. May you be glorified, not just in our confession of the work that you have done to forgive us, but by every step we take. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.